Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Wall. Well, it's Multiple Sclerosis Awareness Month in Canada, and it's a condition that we should be aware of. Canada has one of the highest rates of multiple sclerosis, or MS, in the world, with an estimated 90,000 Canadians living with the disease. On average, 12 Canadians are diagnosed with MS every day. Most people are diagnosed with MS between the ages of 20 and 49, and the unpredictable events of the disease will last for the rest of their lives. MS is a chronic autoimmune disease of the central nervous system. That includes the brain, the spinal cord, and the optic nerve, and it can affect vision, memory, balance, and mobility. It's considered an episodic disability, meaning that the severity and the duration of illness and disability, they can vary often, followed by periods of wellness and health. It's also progressive. This disease attacks what's called the myelin, which is a protective covering around our nerves, causing inflammation and often damaging the myelin. Myelin's necessary for the transmission of nerve impulses through nerve fibers. If the damage to the myelin is slight, nerve impulses travel with minor interruptions. However, if damage is substantial and if scar tissue replaces the myelin, nerve impulses may be completely disrupted and the nerve fibers themselves can be damaged. MS is really unpredictable and may cause symptoms such as extreme fatigue, lack of coordination, weakness, tingling, impaired sensation, vision problems, bladder problems, cognitive impairment, and mood changes. Its effects can be physical, emotional, and financial. And currently there's no cure, but each day researchers are learning more about what causes MS and they're zeroing in on ways to prevent it. Two of those researchers are right here at Memorial University and have the distinguished recognition as Canada Research Chairs, which is a federally funded research program awarded to those who are leaders in their field. Dr. Craig Moore is an Associate Professor of Neuroimmunology and a Canada Research Chair in Neuroscience and Brain Repair at Memorial University. Dr. Moore's research is focused on identifying biomarkers and novel therapeutic targets that can be used to help better understand mechanisms of disease progression and repair in MS. His lab is currently funded by the Canadian Institute for Health Research, Natural Sciences and Engineering Research Council of Canada, the MS Society of Canada, and the Canada Research Chair Program. And joining him today is Dr. Michelle Plowman. She's a physiotherapist, neuroscientist, and Canada Research Chair who designs innovative exercise-based treatments to help repair and protect the brain. Dr. Plowman's research targets stroke and MS, two of the most common and disabling diseases impacting the lives of Canadians. With over 70 highly cited publications, she's an internationally recognized expert on exercise and what's called neuroplasticity. Along with leading a multi-million dollar research program, Dr. Plowman works with clinicians and patients on the front lines to improve the healthcare that patients receive. Let's just say I don't think we could get two better experts on the show to chat about this topic today. Let's check it out. Hi, Dr. Plowman. Hi, Dr. Moore. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having us. Thank you. It's great to have you here today because we are talking about multiple sclerosis and May is MS Awareness Month. For the people that are listening that may not be aware of what the condition is, um, what is MS? Maybe I'll throw that to you first, Dr. Moore. Multiple sclerosis is often classified as an autoimmune disease, although there is some research out there and speculation that it might not completely be autoimmune mediated, depending on uh, the classification and definition of an autoimmune disease. But it's definitely a disease that involves the immune system, whereby there's an attack of your T cells and B cells. And with COVID and everything happening now, I think everyone's a little bit more aware of what T cells and B cells are and how they are involved in the immune response. But it's really when these T cells and B cells start to create 
autoantibodies or they start attacking the myelin in the central nervous system. So that central nervous system being the brain, the spinal cord, and can also include the optic nerve. So what happens is that there's dysregulated immune responses, you get a lot of inflammation, and it's particularly targeted at the brain and the spinal cord, particularly the myelin, which is kind of like the insulating sheath. What, we're, what we teach in, in medical school is that this is kind of like the, the covering of a, uh, of a telephone wire or a power wire. It helps with conductivity. And of course, if you lose some of that protective sheath in the myelin, you lose efficient transmission of action potentials and the signals that go down neurons that help us do all our daily functioning, movement, thinking, and such. Yeah, I heard it one time described like it's a hose with a bunch of holes in it. So the water pressure at the end isn't very good because it's leaky along the way. So yeah, that's, that's a perfect analogy. Yeah. Okay, good. That's great. Um, so what are, what are some of the causes, uh, Dr. Plum? No one really understands why people get MS. It's a curious thing. So it affects people really in their career and family building years, ages 16 to 40. It affects women more than men, three to one. And I think there's theories. So there's theories that there's a genetic link. So people who are brothers and sisters and cousins have a slightly, if one person in the family has a master's, a slightly increased risk of the other person in the family, close relative also getting a master's. Some people think there's some kind of a viral trigger so that you've been perhaps exposed. And some people think it could be uh, being exposed to mono, for example, at a young age, and that may prime the immune system. And then the immune system starts to mistake, you know, really healthy myelin and attack it and break it down. And there's another idea about vitamin D and sunshine. So it seems that if you're in colder climates, north of the equator, that you're more likely to get MS. And it might be related to vitamin D's role in the controlling the immune system. So it seems like it's a perfect storm of factors. Mm. It sounds like it's very specific to here in, in Newfoundland. Uh, Dr. Moore, do we see higher rates of MS here in the region? Um, it's really difficult to state. There's been reports um, within individual regions across Canada, across the United States, across Europe, and of course, as well as our government tries to incorporate data from different health regions, it's really not collected in a manner that can be compared regionally. Mm -hmm. So some provinces get the incidence or prevalence of MS from health records. Some may get it from prescription records uh, based on who's getting prescribed certain medications to treat MS, which may or may not be as accurate. So it's really difficult to compare. What we do know is that Canada has one of the highest rates of MS in the world, and that's on par with, with United States and Germany and some northern Scandinavian countries as well. Mm, that's interesting. You know, before we get into how it's diagnosed and what some of the symptoms are, maybe each of you could tell us a little bit about your background. Uh, Dr. Plummer, what's your area of research? So I started off many years ago as a physiotherapist, and I worked on the front lines in the multiple sclerosis clinic. And really observed uh, the fact that there were differences in the way people progressed. So some people had a more stable disease, others had a more severe, and sometimes it, it was related to health and lifestyle. So I got really interested in, in neuroplasticity, brain recovery, and this led me to my background in neuroscience and animal models where you can take the brains out, of course, 
measure neurons and, uh, and now I do clinical trials and I work with people with MS and stroke here at Memorial University and I'm a Canada Research Chair uh-huh. in Rehabilitation, Neuroplasticity and Recovery. And that means that the federal government is really invested in people like me to advance this field forward. And Craig is also a Canada Research Chair. Yes, and for anybody listening, that is extremely difficult to attain, and it's a very high accolade and recognition for the work you're doing, so obviously you're making very impactful research. That's great, because we're going to talk a little bit about exercise and rehabilitation later on. Dr. Moore, tell us about your research. Yeah, so I'm a uh, neuroimmunologist, so what that really means is that I look at how the nervous system interacts with the immune system and how the immune system can impact mechanisms of inflammation, but also importantly, repair. So we always think of inflammation as being really, really bad. Uh, We take, you know, pills to decrease inflammation, or we take certain really high efficacy drugs like steroids to treat inflammation. But what a lot of people sometimes don't realize is that, and some immunologists don't even sometimes uh, remember, is that inflammation is really important to initiate repair. And if you do not have inflammation, your body can't signal that something is wrong and that something needs repairing. And that's one of the issues right now. And we'll talk about that later, about the different drugs to treat MS. That's something that's really lacking is the mechanisms of repair. So what my research is really trying to do, um, well, I have many different facets, but one key area is looking at mechanisms of inflammation that can actually promote repair and ensuring that when we treat conditions like MS, we don't block the mechanisms that induce repair, but only block the mechanisms that cause the injury. So that's really what uh, my lab is focused on. Yeah, that's the human body is so complicated. How do you differentiate the two? But that almost leads us into our next question, really. And that is, how is MS diagnosed? Is it through these inflammatory markers? Or are there other symptoms that people can be aware of? So the diagnosis of MS is really challenging for neurologists. It's often diagnosed by exclusion criteria. You have to kind of tick off a whole bunch of boxes and say, no, it's not this. No, it's not this. No, it's not this. And what you're left with is, okay, well, this is a possible MS diagnosis. And there's a lot of different diseases that kind of mimic MS. And it's really important that it's not misdiagnosed because the therapies to treat MS aren't often effective in these other demyelinating or immune-mediated brain conditions. So what's often used is a gold standard in our field, which is MRI. So any MS patients out there have probably sat themselves in an MRI or laid themselves down in MRI. And usually this is done yearly to look for lesions within the brain. And what's required for the diagnosis of MS is the dissemination of time and space. So if you just get one attack, that doesn't really mean you have MS. It could be multiple things. You can get lesions from infections. You can get lesions from migraines. You can get lesions from lots of other pathological conditions. But when you start seeing these lesions in different areas of the brain or, or spinal cord, and over a period of time, like a new lesion pops up a year or two later, that's often satisfies the current diagnostic criteria for MS. So it's, again, the dissemination in space and time, Mm -hmm. but time is brain. We do not want to wait for years and years for another patient to come along and, you know, some, every patient is different. So what we're really trying to do and what our lab is doing together with Michelle is trying to establish biomarkers and looking at 
molecules in the blood or in the cerebral spinal fluid that can aid in this diagnosis so that we don't have to wait this critical period for another relapse to occur in these patients. That's right. So you benchmark them against themselves, but you don't want too much time to pass because that could make the condition a little bit worse if it's not treated sooner. Yeah, absolutely. And it's very, very clear that treating the disease early is much more effective and results in better outcomes for the patients uh, mm. 20, 30 years down the road. We, we know that now. It's Multiple Sclerosis Awareness Month here in Canada, and we're talking with two experts in the field. Neuroimmunologist Dr. Craig Moore and neuroscientist Dr. Michelle Plowman, who are both Canada Research Chairs and professors at Memorial University. We'll be right back. Welcome back. It's Multiple Sclerosis Awareness Month here in Canada, and we are talking with two experts in the field, neuroimmunologist Dr. Craig Moore and neuroscientist Dr. Michelle Plowman, who are both Canada Research Chairs and professors at Memorial University. We're talking about the signs, symptoms, treatments, and important research in MS. Let's check it out. Well, Dr. Plummet, I have to assume that there's probably some impact when it comes to their mobility and their, and their, and their muscles. And so the area that you look at in the rehabilitation side, what are some of the symptoms that people will experience with MS? You know, it's really interesting working with people with MS because you'd be surprised that many people don't have any symptoms at the moment. So they might be feeling really well, but what's some of the most common is probably fatigue is number one. So many, many people feel fatigue and it's not just the fatigue, you know, everybody feels tired. It's an overwhelming fatigue that doesn't really match the energy you expended. And it could be cognitive fatigue. Like people say, I can't, I hit the wall and I can't think one more minute or physical fatigue. And so that creates a huge barrier for them. So they may look fine on the outside to friends and family, but they have this severe fatigue. The next one's probably walking. Um, so except people to do complain of like gradually changes in their walking and their balance, uh, cognition and thinking. So being able to mem remember and, and encode a lot of information at one time or think about two things at one time. So you have trouble, uh, like for example, walking on an escalator and looking and speaking to somebody. So they can't seem to coordinate multiple things at the same time. And this is because of the slowing of these networks. So it's very individual. It depends on where an individual's lesions are and uh, the accumulation of lesions. And like I said, you know, many people feel symptom-free for a long, long time. Mm. So it seems like there's a spectrum of just how severe it can get, you know, and the question, I guess, you know, that we have to ask, it's a little bit of a rough question, but it, can MS be fatal for people? What we know right now is, and, and this is from many, many years of data, is that the lifespan is shortened about eight years. But remember that that data is collected almost 20 years ago. Mm. And today, Many patients take these disease-modifying drugs, which Dr. Moore mentioned, which are changing the face of, of MS. So we don't actually know what the future will be. I'll say overall, it's not fatal, but for some people, they can have a very severe progression. And so, yeah, right. but so usually people die of some other factor. Yeah. Right. So it's quality of life and it's also about identifying, it really sounds like the therapeutics are quite effective. Dr. Moore, you know, how does this impact our immune system? I know that's your area of expertise. I know it attacks the myelination of the nerves, but 
Can you give us a little breakdown of how it sort of develops? Well, that's really interesting because there's two theories and camps out there of how it kind of develops. So we do know that ultimately at the end of the day, the immune system is attacking the brain and spinal cord. Um, what, how that started, we don't know because we don't know what causes MS as uh, Dr. Plumman already alluded to. But the two theories are that there's a single event that happened in the brain that initiates an event and initiates the immune system. Or the other theory, which that first theory is called the uh, inside out theory. And then the outside in theory is that something happens within our peripheral blood or in our lymph nodes or in immune organs where the immune system just gets dysregulated. And for some reason, these immune cells, which naturally do go into our brain to keep us healthy and keep us safe from any viral infections that or bacterial infections that might get into the brain, that when these cells are dysregulated, they do end up into the central nervous system, start attacking the brain. So because we know that all of the therapies are actually targeting inflammation or targeting the trafficking of the immune system or the immune cells into the brain. So one example of a drug called Tisabri or Natalizumab actually blocks the immune cells from entering the central nervous system. So you can't get the attack of the myelin because the cells are blocked from going in there. Now, one side effect of that is that your, your brain needs natural immune surveillance. Mm. And these patients can uh, develop viral infections and they can succumb to them if they're not uh, careful and carefully monitored. So that's one example of, of, of a drug that can actually be very, very effective in decreasing MS relapses. But uh, like all the drugs for treating MS, particularly the, the newer classes of monoclonal antibodies, you do have to be very, very closely monitored by a neurologist. Right. I heard the immune system described one time, but people uh, might not know that there's all sorts of immune cells and some of them are like secret agents that go in and tell what's going on and then they can send in the aircraft later on. But without that surveillance, then obviously your body wouldn't know what it's fighting and maybe hit the wrong target, if that makes sense. Uh, let's talk a little bit about research right now, because this is obviously where you guys spend a lot of your time. What research is ongoing to find a cure? Maybe I'll start with you, Dr. Moore, and then you can jump in, Dr. Plowman, afterwards with what you're doing as well. So to find a cure, so this is really an interesting question, and it's a question that's posed, you know, to, to groups and to patients um, with all types of diseases, cancer, uh, other neurological disabilities, uh, cardiovascular disease, we want this cure. And what's interesting is, at least in the MS literature and what we've, we've seen is that quality of life is sometimes surpasses what we're looking for. And as Dr. Plowman mentioned, people can live very early. She's published on octogenarians, so people in their 80s living with multiple sclerosis and what problems they face. So it's not often a cure that we're looking for, albeit that there are several groups that are looking for you know, bona fide cures. It's really therapies that are not going to predispose people to all these different side effects. And we're really trying to personalize uh, I know this word is used a lot, yeah. this idea of personalized medicine. So not just taking a therapy and giving it to the entire population, but in MS, we have 15 different Health Canada approved drugs to treat MS. Now, not all of them are suitable for every single patient. So how do we know who gets this therapy versus that therapy? And that's one of the major uh, hurdles that is 
being faced by neurologists when they're prescribing the medications. There's so many different ways that these drugs are delivered. There's many side effects. There's different monitoring guidelines and there's different comorbidities that MS patients can have that might preclude them from being prescribed a certain therapy. So the cure question is a difficult one because we don't know what really causes MS. And if we even knew what caused MS, is it still possible that we could cure it? And the answer to that is we, we don't know. Yeah. So the majority of research is really now focused on finding better therapies, more personalized therapies, and trying to figure out how the disease progresses and, and in who. That's right. I'm doing a TEDx talk and I'm doing it on the continuum of health. Health isn't binary, neither sick nor healthy. And 96% of people in the world have at least one medical ailment. So it comes down to quality of life. You know, I think 3 billion people have over five different medical diagnoses. So it's about, yeah, quality of life. And that's what people sometimes underestimate. Dr. Palm, do you want to add anything to that? I think about MS as an autoimmune disease that's part of a family of autoimmune diseases. Think about rheumatoid arthritis, an autoimmune disease that affects the joints. Think about inflammatory bowel disease, an autoimmune disease that affects the small and large colon. So if we can find a cure for, I think if we can find the reason why people have these autoimmune diseases, we'll actually probably find the reason why people get MS. But I think there's a family of diseases that we need to work on why people get autoimmune diseases. Mm, that makes perfect sense. That makes perfect sense. Well, I, one of the things you were talking about is being able to identify these brain markers and the inflammatory sort of response that's happening early on. Dr. Moore, uh, that's a huge part of your research. Tell me a little bit about that. And maybe you could throw in a little bit more about the microRNAs as well, because that's another area you look at. Yeah. So we're really fortunate, maybe we'll get into this later, that we have a very collaborative research team here at Memorial University in Eastern Health that involves clinicians, graduate students, postdocs, nurses, and all stakeholders who are, in, who are invested in MS patients and MS research. And we're, we're lucky that we're able to actually confront patients right at the very beginning of a possible MS disease diagnosis and be able to take their blood or take their cerebral spinal fluid that they're, that they're getting for their clinical tests and having some of that uh, sample actually passed on to a research lab. Uh, like my lab. So what we do is where we process those samples and store them really cold in minus 80 freezers or in liquid nitrogen. Mm -hmm. And we kind of sit on those samples for a while and see what happens to a patient. So six months down the road, we'll find out that this patient ended up having MS um, or this patient might not have. And what we can do is retrospectively dig back into our freezers and say, hey, this person developed a, a really severe form of MS. What is different in their cerebral spinal fluid or in their blood or in their plasma? And what differentiates that from this patient who, you know, it's four or five years out and this person never had a, a subsequent attack and is doing perfectly well. And then you of course have to collect that in hundreds of patient samples because you need statistical significance to make sure that you're not saying something that's a false negative or a false positive. So it takes time to accrue these samples but what we've been doing for the past five years is accruing these samples and now being able to answer a lot of these questions because we know how some of these patients have turned out in terms of their disease trajectory. Mm -hmm. So uh, in terms of the microRNAs, microRNAs are, without getting too much molecular biology in there, because they, they, they're, uh, they're a pesky little uh, group of molecules that can conf confuse a lot of people, even myself, 
but they're a group of non-coding RNA molecules. So I think a lot of people have heard about RNA because mm -hmm. of these mRNA vaccines. So what microRNAs are, are they're not the genetic components that encode genes. Um, they're, they're genetic components that sit in between genes within your DNA. Mm -hmm. And what we've found in the last 20 years is these little tiny microRNAs actually move around the body um, very, uh, very promiscuously and can uh, control the expression of genes. So it, it control what our cells do and, and what our cells look like. Mm -hmm. And many microRNAs have been implicated in uh, autoimmune diseases. Uh, many microRNAs have been implicated in central nervous system conditions. So what my research has previously shown and what we're continuing to do is looking at these certain microRNA molecules within MS patient blood and cerebral spinal fluid and try and figure out if we can exactly kind of serve or develop a biomarker that can predict how a patient might develop disease later on. That's right. And, and for those people that are understand about sample size and how valuable it is to have that information coming directly in from the hospital is if you had a couple people, a couple samples, there might have thousands of things in common, but then you times that by 10 and now there's hundreds and you times that by a thousand more. And then there's a smaller and smaller number because you're able to source out what's that common thing throughout it. And that's really what you're trying to find, right? Yeah, no, exactly. And uh, we've been lucky that the samples, the, the patient population here in Newfoundland has been very, very giving. I think they support research in general. I think they support, I know that the MS research community and the, and the patients here in the province have been very, very supportive of our research. And we continue and hope to be able to give back um, in years to come. It's Multiple Sclerosis Awareness Month here in Canada, and we're talking with two experts in the field, neuroimmunologist Dr. Craig Moore and neuroscientist Dr. Michelle Plowman, who are both Canada Research Chairs and professors at Memorial University. We'll be right back. Welcome back. It's Multiple Sclerosis Awareness Month here in Canada, and we are talking with two experts in the field, neuroimmunologist Dr. Craig Moore and neuroscientist Dr. Michelle Plowman, who are both Canada Research Chairs and professors at Memorial University. We're talking about the signs, symptoms, treatments, and important research in MS. Let's check it out. You know, we talked about some of the medications that people can take uh, to help. What are some other treatment options for people when it comes to MS? I think probably the number one treatment option, which is along the lines of things you're interested in is lifestyle. Mm. And so there's a couple of things we've learned over the many years that we've been studying MS, not our group, but people internationally, is that if you smoke, for example, your disease will progress much faster. If you have a cardiovascular disease, so for example, hypertension, high lipids, any diabetes, any of these cardiovascular, what we call comorbid conditions, that you lose about six years of walking ability. So that's substantial. Think about that. So it means that there is some control that the body is trying to repair itself and that perhaps we can help it repair itself. So what I'm really interested is in exercise and fitness and how that affects the immune system and the brain. And Dr. Moore and I and Dr. Fraser Clift, who's a neurologist, and Dr. Mark Stefanelli, 
who also is a neurologist. We just were awarded, so shout out to the Canadian Institutes for Health Research, who funded us last year, looking at exercise epigenomics. So what is it do we think that exercise is doing to modify these microRNAs to turn or influence the immune system and to protect the brain and also to promote brain repair. So the beauty of the nervous system is yes, you get this damage to the myelin, but the brain is trying to repair itself. And so these little special cells called oligodendrocytes will come near, they can proliferate, they can grow and develop and start to rewrap these bare denuded pieces of neurons. And so what we think is that exercise might be playing that role of the repairer and we just need to know a lot more about it. And uh, so in my research, it, it, you know, it's easy to say, oh, I think you should exercise. But the reality is people with MS have fatigue. They have heat sensitivity. So as soon as they get warm, they feel overcome. Sometimes they feel like their symptoms are worse. So it's frightening. And then also they have walking problems. So it's very hard to exercise. So we've been developing some ways using a cool room. So we control the temperature of the room. So that, because what we think is that people with MS probably have difficulty with sweating and the normal auto-regulation that would happen with exercise. So you and I would sweat and that would help dissipate some of the heat. So it looks like from our work that people with MS can't dissipate that heat as well. And that results in muscle weakness, temporary muscle weakness. But over time, they can overcome that in a cooler room and that benefits the central nervous system. So I can talk forever on our work. So we've really looked, we can probe the brain. So we use a device called transcranial magnetic stimulation. And really it's a magnet coil that you place over the top of your head. So just above your ear. And it painlessly penetrates the skull, stimulates the neurons on top of the brain. And we can look at the speed of how well that information can conduct from the top of your brain right to your hand. So it tells us about, oh, how fast are things moving? And we found that people who are fitter, even when you control for their age, how long they've had MS, they have a healthier tracks inside their brain. So Mm -hmm. it looks positive that we can help with exercise to keep the integrity of the brain. And some other groups have actually shown that people who are fitter and who exercise have fewer relapses of MS. So this is really promising. And this is the area we're going in. Dr. Moore and I are really trying to understand like what is going on? What Mm -hmm. is the epigenomics of this story? And so that's what we're probing now. That's really interesting. It sounds like some of the behaviors that cause inflammation in the body, like smoking and poor lifestyle can make it worse, but the things that help relieve that and make our bodies healthier. So rebuilding muscle may rebuild nerves. I also heard another theory that, you know, when you exercise, your brain becomes more efficient at sending signals. Is that something that you think might be an aspect of the exercise is that it makes the brain have a stronger signal to the muscles? Yes. So what we work on with our using our transcranial magnetic stimulation, imagine that your, your brain is at a, a state of readiness. It's not sleepy, it's not under ready, it's not over ready, it's just right. And what we find is that people who are fitter 
have less inhibition. So they have great little bit higher level of excitation within the brain and it makes the brain be able to respond quicker and learn. So that's, that's some of the work that we're doing. We just uh, received a special device called functional near infrared spectroscopy. And what it does is measure the blood flow within the brain while you're doing tasks real time, like standing on one foot or using your hand. And we're studying how the brain is modifying itself with fitness and exercise. It's Multiple Sclerosis Awareness Month here in Canada, and we're talking with two experts in the field, neuroimmunologist Dr. Craig Moore and neuroscientist Dr. Michelle Plowman, who are both Canada Research Chairs and professors at Memorial University. We'll be right back. Welcome back. It's Multiple Sclerosis Awareness Month here in Canada, and we are talking with two experts in the field, neuroimmunologist Dr. Craig Moore and neuroscientist Dr. Michelle Plowman, who are both Canada Research Chairs and professors at Memorial University. We're talking about the signs, symptoms, treatments, and important research in MS. Let's check it out. Okay, Dr. Moore, one of the areas that you're looking at specifically is HIT. MS. Can you explain what that program is? Yeah, so HIT-MS is an acronym that we came up with when we first started. So Michelle and I actually started very close as professors at, um, or assistant professors at Memorial. She started a year before me, and we were fortunate enough to both become Canada Research Chairs at the same time, and we overlap with each other. So it basically meant that there was this 10-year somewhat guaranteed funding from the federal government to support our research programs here at Mon. So we teamed up together and um, it's very important that you have patient samples and patients to study a disease like MS. So a lot of my work in my PhD actually focused on animal models of MS and demyelination and those are very critical but you also need a patient population to study. And instead of me taking a patient population and studying something, and then Michelle taking a separate MS patient population, almost like we'd be competing for like two different MS patient populations within a relatively small province or, or city like St. John's, we thought that it would be best to team up together and pool our resources, pool our funds, pool our expertise, and make something like HIT-MS, which stands for the Health Research Innovation Team in Multiple Sclerosis. And what this is, it's a longitudinal study that will last 10 years. We're in year five right now that will track MS patients over time. And uh, we collect blood and blood cells from these patients and we store them. So we're able to match what is happening with the patients clinically with what is going on potentially in their blood or in their cerebral spinal fluid or in their blood plasma and match that with metrics such as, you know, MRI activity, cognition, exercise, and, and fitness, as Michelle has, has previously mentioned, so that we're all working from this same patient base. And the patients don't kind of realize that this is happening underneath. They think, you know, they're, they're taking part, they're getting blood, and they don't know where this blood goes. And then they're going to the Miller Center, to Michelle's lab, to take part in some of her research. And what they don't realize is that this is a very longitudinal long study and that what data they're giving us right now is actually going to 
make wonders, hopefully, in for many, many years to come. Yeah, it's so fortunate that you've got an ability to track things. You think about like the Framingham study, which they tracked a population and they were able to find out all sorts of clues around heart disease that have changed the way we treat people. So it's extremely valuable to have this. Okay, so we're starting to, you know, wind down a little bit, but like, uh, Dr. Plowman, what advice would you give people who are facing MS about how they should face this disease going forward? I think that the first thing I would say is assess your lifestyle read the literature, use something like Google Scholar, which is a really good source of information. So listen to your neurologist. And I think that if I were me and I have many very close friends who have MS, and the first thing you do is quit smoking. Uh, we learned this from our octogenarian study. So octogenarians, people who live to be in their 80s with MS, who've had MS for more than 20 years, what we learned about them is they don't smoke. They exercise more than other Canadians their age, despite their disability. And they drink very minimal amount of alcohol. And so we know that they're setting themselves up for better longer term effects. So a lot of people tell me, you know, well, how much exercise do I need to do? Fortunately, there are guidelines through the MS Society of Canada that has been endorsed by the Canadian Society for Exercise Physiology that says that you should accumulate 150 minutes of exercise. And there's guidelines to say how much should be aerobic, how much should be strength. And it's a really good place to start. And I always say when I worked as a physio that people say, oh, but I can't do that, you know, exhausting. I said, well, try things like exercise in the morning when it's a little cooler have your layers on that you can strip off your layers if you get really hot. Some studies show that drinking ice chips, so having some ice chips and letting that settle in your belly will sometimes keep you a little cooler and then you'll be able to tolerate your exercise a little bit more. So I think that would be the fundamentals. That's what we've learned from our study of aging with multiple sclerosis. That's excellent. That's great advice. And you know, it's, it's being healthy, it reduces stress in the body and that stress manifests in whatever we have. So that's, uh, that's great advice. Uh, Dr. Moore, what about you? What would you encourage people to do if the, to, to get diagnosed, to stay on top of things from, from your side of things? Yeah, so Michelle, cut, uh, Michelle definitely touched on a lot of the key points. Some additional points is that you need to have conversations with your neurologists and, and your general practitioners about what is going on. What are you feeling? Don't hold anything back. What you think might be just some minor, you know, numbness uh, might actually be something more. Make sure you go and get your blood taken when you are getting your blood tests or being on a certain drug. Many of these drugs do require monitoring and the neurologist or prescriber can't really guide you through or make accurate assessment of how a drug is working if we don't have all the information. So if the neurologist is telling you every six months, make sure you get your blood taken so I can have the reports to assess what's going on to deem if this medication is still doing what it's supposed to do. That's one thing certainly that the, that the patients can do to help themselves and, and the clinicians to make sure they're on a, on a healthy course. Right. Well, it sounds like it's a very serious condition, but it also sounds like there's a lot of optimism when it comes to treatment. Uh, Dr. Moore, what do you see happening in the future as we continue to look into this condition? Oh, it's, it's absolutely the, wow, it's, 
it's crazy. So when I first started, I, I start, I'm starting to feel old now, but when I first started my MS research about 18 years ago, I was thinking that this morning, <laughs> there were only three therapies that were available for MS patients. And now there are 15. Mm-hmm. Now that doesn't mean that everything is done. Oh, there's so many drugs. There's so many treatment options. Oh, MS is quote unquote cured. No, a lot, as we mentioned, a lot of these medications are not effective in certain individuals and they're not appropriate for certain uh, patients. And all of them are focused on the immune system and none are focused on repairing the central nervous system. So what the real focus now for a lot of groups across Canada and the world is trying to find these drug targets whether they're in the immune system or whether they're in the brain itself that can actually promote repair because we can stop the inflammation, but we do know that even if we stop the inflammation effectively, these, some patients still, a large majority of patients will still progress. So there is an inherent underlying kind of neurodegenerative aspect of multiple sclerosis that we need to focus on. So I see a lot of the research coming down the pipeline now um, at conferences and such that a, a lot of people are focusing on these direct mechanisms of repair, whether they're on the oligodendrocyte that myelinates, like Michelle had mentioned, or directly on the neuron itself, which could show promise also in other diseases like Parkinson's or ALS. Interesting. Yeah. And Dr. Plowman, uh, what do you see in the future? You know, I'm excited now more than ever. So when I started working in the MS clinic in the 90s, there were no treatments. You know, I met these individuals who were using canes and wheelchairs and it was devastating. And now I see it. We call it the new MS. It is the new MS. And what will happen, I think, as we move towards these repair drugs is we're gonna have a cocktail. So you have your immune drug, you have your repair drug, and then you put into your lifestyle modifications, and maybe you can live a long and healthy life with very, very minimal symptoms. That's excellent. Well, it sounds very encouraging. Thank you both so much for joining me today. And thank you also for doing the amazing work you're doing. I know that everybody who's, who's faced with this condition is nice to have people like you on their side doing this type of work. So thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having us. Yeah, it was great. Thank you, Mike. Thank you to Dr. Plowman and Dr. Moore for taking the time to chat today. There's very encouraging news in the fight against MS, and it's nice that we have experts here at home leading the charge. For more information, check out the MSSociety.ca. They have tools on navigating the disease, finding resources in your area, funding for quality of life equipment, and that great information that Dr. Plowman shared about exercise. They're also matching charitable donations this month that go to the types of research we spoke about today. So if you're looking to help out, that's a great place to start. Thanks for joining me today. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Wall. We'll see you back here next week for another episode of the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM.